Welcome to this latest edition of the Visions and Tones podcast. I'm back again, and today we're actually talking about an interesting topic around smart cities and big data. And the guest I'm having today is actually not a new person. We had a conversation on responsible responsible artificial intelligence for those who can still remember uh, Dr. Humphrey Obie. So Dr. Obie is back with us again today. Dr. Obie in Melbourne. How are you? Welcome. It's good to have um, you. I'm very well. Um, Tony, thanks for having me again. Um, right. It was a very pleasant experience the last time and I'm happy to be back um, to share once again. Right, right. No, it's good. It's good to have you. Uh, I'm excited uh, to be talking to you after quite a while. Um, we had planned to come and have this conversation, but things happened. And But anyways, we're here now. And today we're talking big data, right? We're talking smart cities, basically, and including big data. So in, in the previous episode, I actually mentioned that part of your work is not just on responsible artificial intelligence in the context of um, mobile apps, but you also do work on smart cities. Um, can you just share with us a little bit what exactly in particular are you doing on smart cities and what are smart cities? Um, yeah, thanks for the question, Tony. I've done a bit of work on smart cities. In fact, that's uh, the main topic for my first postdoc um, postdoctoral um, research um, fellowship. Um, so maybe I'll start by briefly explaining what a smart city is. A smart city is simply an urban area whose economic growth, quality of life, and governance structures are supported by information and communication technologies. Um, there's a projection that by 2050, more than two-thirds of the world's population will live in cities. And they have AI in smart cities that's going to play a big role in making urbanization smarter and perhaps more sustainable um, in the long run. Um, so the plan behind smart cities is to make um, life easier for people who live in the cities, to live, to work, to shop, and um, enjoy a safe and more convenient life in general. Mm -hmm. And and along to, or let me just say next to smart cities, there's always this phrase of big data. What is yeah. big data and how does it relate to smart cities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a very, that's a very um, interesting question. For smart cities to work correctly, to function correctly, um, they need the processing of huge quantities of data. And this huge quantity of data is what we refer to in the, in the IT space as big data. Some really big data can be described in, in the terms of three Vs. So the three Vs are volume, velocity, and variety, which simply means massive data sets that are processed very quickly and they come in different forms and formats. So we need this um, kind of data, very fast processing of this really fast data, um, huge in quantity, and also diverse in their formats to make smart cities work and function effectively. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dr. Obie, in the times where there's so many concerns about data mining um you know if you remember a couple of years a couple of years ago just very yesterday uh even how zuckerberg was called in to come and account on how you know he's using people's data or people's uh um, information to actually sell to companies or whatever the case um i was somewhat curious to sort of understand what kind of data in your knowledge was actually looked into 
to end up deciding you know that we need smart cities was was it was it something in relation to data or it's just something from the observation of just life in general and and if it's if it has to do with data uh, as far as you know was it was it accessed in an ethical way or there could have been other ways even around it and and even considering the fact that even now probably our lives are sort of still being observed or whatnot you know um we've spoken a little bit about algorithms even the last time yeah uh, you yeah. know even the way our lives are observed today would you still say there's still a matter of ethical thing to project to 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 project or to help business people or even governments to think about future policies and inventions and whatever the case yeah 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 there's um there's actually a whole uh, body of work on um data collection in smart cities um making ethical decisions, making sure that the data that's collected to feed into smart cities, that all of these are done in the most ethical way as possible. Uh, what I'll say here is that um, the concept of smart city, it's, um, it's not just, it's not a one size fit all. Mm -hmm. So different counties, different government, different city councils, they go about building smart cities or building technologies um technological solutions for their cities differently so the way um newcastle will build their smart cities is going to be slightly different from the way that cancer um cancers in the united states will build their own smart cities i'll give you an example um, from the city of melbourne one of the things that melbourne did a couple of years ago this is um, maybe five six years um, i also did a bit of work on that is to understand how people use the CBD, the Central Business District. So what the city of Melbourne did was uh, they placed sensors in different um, locations in the city. So you have sensors um, in train stations, uh, maybe front of libraries, all of these different places. But what the sensors they do, they don't capture personal identifying information so when a person walks walks past a place it's basically a logger it counts it says the sensor would say okay one person has passed if someone else passes such that at the end such that at the end of the day you can see that we had 25 2500 people pass through flinders street station so the traffic for um, flinders street station is maybe the average for uh, a weekday is 2500 people and then maybe for a weekend where people go out the the most and uh, we have you know 4000 people pass through flinders street station so one, one of the benefits of this um of this particular project is to really understand how people use the cbd and uh, influence kind of decision they make so decisions like how much police officers should we deploy to a particular location at this particular day if we know that um melbourne central station is very busy at you know this time of the day um perhaps we need more police presence in that particular area or maybe we need to you know put more eateries or restaurants in this particular location or how do we deploy security personnel all of these um kind of information are uh, what um, influenced, uh, for, for instance, the 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 project you had uh, at Melbourne City, uh, Melbourne City Council. 
as I'm wrapping my head around this, you said different counties or different, you know, countries might actually build smart cities differently. I'm trying to figure that out. I can hear that they, they do census and whatnot, but what what's the main differing thing? Does it have to do also with the kind of ground? Does it have to do with the landscape? Does it have to do with people's passions and whatnot? Um, and and does it also consider issues of reproduction, for instance, um, you know, so that you don't build something thinking that it will be sustainable in the long run. You find that then it gets overpopulated, therefore the smart cities can no longer contain us because people couldn't even project um, issues of, you know, migration, people moving in or people moving out and stuff like yeah. that. What exactly was considered? Yeah, so for, um, like I said, for different cities, um, they have their own, their own different considerations. Um, I'm trying to remember the city in the U.S. Their main challenge was traffic. So they, they were seeking for a better way to, to improve the traffic flow, you know, to decrease traffic congestion. So what they eventually did, um, introduced certain portions of um, a smart city solution where they had all of the traffic lights all connected to the same network and then the traffic lights communicate with each other. So instead of having fixed time, traffic um, light control where it's going to be green for maybe two minutes and then it becomes red and then becomes um, green again. So they had this way, automated way of doing it where depending on how much traffic is going through a particular road, um, they have these cameras that feed, that process this, the images and the video from the, from the cameras. They have these algorithms, um, edge computing built on these um, on these traffic lights. So if you have less traffic in a particular place, then it's easier for the algorithm to maybe delay traffic at that particular place. And if you have more traffic at a different location, then you're going to have a longer green light. So it's, uh, it's a constant, constantly evolving, adaptive um, traffic light system. And they did that just because of the kind of issue that they were facing at, the, at that particular time. There's another example of, um, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, one of the things that they did, they, they realized that certain parts of um, Louisville, Kentucky in the U.S., in fact, Louisville, Kentucky in the U.S. Um, has the reputation as one of the worst cities for breathing disorders. So they had um, a very good, um, like, substantial number of people with asthma, asthmatic problems. So what they did um, to solve this particular problem is that they installed um, sensors in different areas of um, of the city, and they had this partnership with its uh, with this health organization. And then using this using this particular um, you know network of sensors, they're able to tell um, air quality. So they had these sensors, you know, measuring air quality, and then they're able to say, okay, this part of you know Louisville, Kentucky, there's a lot of air pollution. And then they're able to inform citizens that uh, in this particular place, this might not be the best place for you to live in because of your health, because of your health, you know, situation. And um, it influences things like where do we plant trees, you know, to help with, you know, with the environment. Where do we reduce, um, you know, houses? How do we reduce diesel emissions and fuel emissions? So all of these different cities, um, I haven't yet seen one city that had all of the smart city technologies deployed they are basically deployed based on the particular use case mm. that they have 
And that particular use case is what influences what particular technologies that they use in deploying their smart city um, solutions. So it's not really one. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. So you're going to ask a question and then I'll, I'll follow on from the question. Oh, okay. Uh, I was going to ask that, but all of them, do they have any common thing? Yes. Yes. They, they have a common thing and that's common thing. It's the, I would say the collection of data because you need data for all of these technologies to work. And then you have government oversight as well. And then, of course, there are issues, you know, there are debates around how this data should be collected, how this data should be deployed. I'll give an example from uh, from one of the smart city, um, hands-on smart city solution that we deployed um, here in Australia. Well, one of the one of the challenges that we had was how do we manage, yeah, this particular place, this particular um, place that we worked with, this particular city council that we worked with, now they had challenges with um, parking. They didn't know how much, how many disabled parking um, to reserve for different places. Do they have? Should they reserve more disabled parking space, or not? Should we have more on street parking or off street parking? How much should we charge for people parking? And then, what about people who decide to? How do they enforce parking um, violations? And um, one of the, it's very easy to just, you know, put in a camera, you know, get people's split numbers, but not everyone is comfortable with, um, you know, they go to a place to park and then their registration number is captured and stored for an indefinite amount, um, amount of time, right? So how to look for a way to, you know, to be able to enforce parking violations while also preserving the the privacy right of people mm-hmm. yeah so and what we did for that particular case is um we captured that because you always have to capture you know capture and then we hashed we use the hashing algorithm to hash the um the details of the person and then we only save the hash um the hash part of it using a very complicated um, algorithm so similar to the way companies that are that are concerned about privacy they don't just save your 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 passwords in um in plain text format Mm -hmm. it's all usually hashed and then a hashed version of it is it's what's what's kept so it's something similar that we did just to you know the balance between enforcing parking violations while also preserving the privacy of everybody involved Yeah, so data collection and how this data affects people is one of the common things that these different places have uh, um, have. Mm-hmm. I mean, so far as an expert in, I consider you an expert in responsible artificial intelligence. And one of the things that you spoke about the last time was um, uh, on issues on on issues of you know gender stereotypes or wherever algorithms could could sort of project any sort of racism or whatever the case i'm curious understanding how far are we in with the context of racism in a space of smart cities um considering the fact that as we are at the moment places like you know the us would still consider 
at least South Africa and many other places that I'm not going to be able to mention here, there's still what is called a red tape or red taping. Yeah. Where, you know, certain spaces will be designated for people of color. You're not supposed to be in here or whatever the case. And yeah. sometimes whether one is moneyed or not, that does not matter. But your race can actually be one of the things that throws you outside of, you know, a particular canon or a particular group or whatnot. How how are we dealing with this? Firstly, maybe the first question would be, um, are those things that are apparent within smart cities and how are they being dealt with? That's a, that's a very good question. It's a it's a practical question because we we live in a world where there is um there's racism, there is you know all kinds of issues, all kinds of ills. There's even a, there's this. It reminds me of the discussion um the discussion I had with a couple of people and something I even wrote in um in a recent paper that we had at the Mining Software Repository. We talked about the violation of honesty in mobile apps. So we did a bit of work on that and then published it at the conference. Mm -hmm. One of the points of discussion, it's whether or not technological solutions hold certain kinds of values. So there is a school of thought that says technology as we see, so something like a smart technology, that it's, um, it's a value agnostic. It doesn't hold any value. It's neutral, that it depends on how the person wielding that technology, how that person uses it. And then there's this other school of thought that says technology in itself is not value agnostic, that certain technologies, they hold and they promote some values over other values. And I'll give you a very practical example. The Bitcoin blockchain technology, it promotes the value of self-direction, you know, being independent from a central trusted third party system right so you can see that the even though even though you have other kinds of technology the way the bitcoin blockchain system was built was to avoid that reliance on third party trusted systems so the people who say technology solutions are not a value agnostic that means they hold certain kind of values they do have a point one of the one of the oldest examples was captured in a in a very influential article titled "Do Values Do?" Um, let me try to see if I can get the name. Mm -hmm. Do artifacts have politics? That's the title of the of the paper. It's very very interesting to read. I'll ask people to read it. Do artifacts have politics? It's by a guy called um, Langdon Winner. Mm -hmm. I think I I may have the the name and in that particular in that particular paper yeah i got the name right his name is langdon winner in that particular paper he argued that technological solutions uh when i mean technological solutions i'm not restricting myself to it systems right and then give the existence of the of a bridge in um in long island in the in in the in in the us he said when that build that bridge was built the way the bridge was built, it was built to exclude certain kinds of people. The, the bridges were built to be very low. And because the, the bridges were built to be very low, they could only allow small cars to pass through. So public buses could not go through. And the reason is that people who ride public buses, they are poor people. 
and then mostly the minority people blacks hispanic uh, they're the ones who take the public buses and so because public buses could not go through those bridges those parts of long island were inaccessible to minorities so it it's you know you it it ended up having only white people um middle class and above who could afford cars so his argument was that the bridges in themselves by design excluded certain other people that they held certain kind of values and permits promoted certain kind of values over um, over other over other people so certainly and uh, in modern day society um yeah we still have these um we still we still have these issues there's some mm -hmm. yeah on. please go ahead i was gonna i was gonna say because you said that the beach was now accessed by minorities and, and i'm thinking the fact that probably in the u.s white people are a majority so so that could be context-based don't you think um it was a very interesting uh it was very it's a very interesting argument in fact there's a counter argument to that particular paper titled do politics have artifacts uh -huh. and um what the other author um tried to argue from the from the other part that um langdon was just being um how do i say it just being overly um i don't think the word is aggressive but just overly you know reading unnecessary unnecessary meaning into something that's not um, that's not there but there's very good reasons to to know that certain kinds of tools they hold value that they're not value agnostic like i gave you the instance of the blockchain bitcoin where it's basically promotes the value of self-direction that's independent from trusted third parties that's independent from governments from big banks right because no, of the way it's built yeah it was just a, a kind of like passing by statement yeah to, to, to sort of flag the minority majority kind of you know argument um yeah. but there's really nothing more in that i guess what i wanted to sort of tap on is that i like the the story you gave because you shared the story even oh. in the first episode on uh responsible artificial intelligence um where where you say therefore people who use big buses cannot access the beach but people who are using private cars can now access the beach and i'm yeah. thinking i'm thinking now in in a sense of my my earlier question my first question was particularly about you know people of color not being able to access a space which means it's easy to trace well in the past it was easy to trace you know people of color in a sense of you know you can see the names you can see you can see the surnames and whatnot but recently due to interracial marriages and whatnot things may have changed here and there and also people faking up names because that's another reality that happens people negotiate space by faking up names you know yeah. uh, uh for instance in, in in south africa recently there was a case where people made a claim that there's a certain taxi oh. industry um that uh tends to give you know to charge white people less prizes than black people whenever you request you know uh for a ride with your mobile phone or whatnot then people had to sort of start changing their names and giving themselves white names and when they when 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 they use white names and they claimed that their 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 trips were no longer now as expensive as they were before now yeah. it was easy to trace people in terms of names <coughs> not so much anymore these days right uh and and the reason i'm asking this question is in the fact that i want to touch on your point in terms of people who use buses would be the poor but i mean these days there's too many people of color who are very rich 
you know they're using private cars and whatnot which at the same time they can access the beach let's say we're arguing in the context of the beach and in the context of the contemporary times yeah. but but still i'm not sure whether i can say your response therefore about smart cities and accessing space and the issue of rate taping has yeah. really addressed um the 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 question on race as yeah. to whether can can is 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 uh red taping certainly going to be addressed in the context of smart cities or because your response does flag the fact that we're still going to have that kind of a problem but the question yeah. is how do we go past that yeah 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 we we'll still have that kind of issues um, i'm not sure if you if you saw it a couple of years ago mm -hmm. very not too far um not too not not too far away um Amazon, they tried this, um, I think same same day delivery based on zip code, only for people to discover that black um, zip codes were not, they're mostly excluded from that same day delivery. And that's because the data that was fed into that system was biased in the first place. Okay. I'll give you an instance. Um, was he a few years ago a guy um called roberts he was um he was arrested for committing a crime they said allegedly committing a crime and the reason he was arrested was because a facial recognition system you know wrongly identified him when he wasn't the he wasn't the perpetrator of that crime but he was accused of that crime because the facial recognition um system um did the wrong thing and one of the reasons the facial recognition system did the wrong thing was because the data that was used to train that system was biased it wasn't inclusive enough so this is something that happened very recently one one of the one of the the ways um it, it's something i've thought about recently to address this kind of issue is something i call um and within the within the the literature it's called inclusive urbanization so inclusive urbanization where you make it a priority to deal with the increasing vulnerability of of the poor disenfranchised uh, population mm -hmm. um, they need to cater to people of all ages gender class income group to have these conversations with them before you build and deploy this city these smart city solutions or any kind of technological solution that you want to build the reason is because there's a concept called indirect stakeholders so indirect stakeholders are people who don't even know about the existence of a technology but yet they're affected by that technology the robert guy who was affected by that technology he never knew that that kind of technology affect what you know existed but it had an impact on him had an impact on his on his life one of the things that we did with that smart city solution deployment that um, we had two years ago was to engage all of different people who are going to be impacted by the decisions that we make so we talked to people from different communities talked to the elderly representatives from the elderly community we talked to, to people from the youth organization we talked to people um, different departments within the council we just tried to to hear a voice conduct conducted workshop 
because these are the people who are going to be affected by the by the technology so until we have um really fully embraced the idea and the ideal of inclusive organization we're still going to have these mm -hmm. these really bad issues i like i like i like that what you say because really inclusive urbanization is really something that we need to look forward to because i was um also kind of worried uh would have made a follow-up question to you in the sense that your response seems to be more focused on you know digital digi digitalized is it digitalized what do you call it digitized uh whatever digitized um uh either screening or cameras or whatnot but I guess my question goes to even the extent of the fact that you would use a human being might be the one who's doing the selection. Yeah. Right. And a human yeah. being could be also corrupted to say it doesn't matter how rich they are, but people of color, no, not in this space, perhaps yeah. in that other block or whichever other block. Because those are things those are things that are actually happening. Yeah. Even in the yeah. context where we do not have smart cities. And my question to you is that considering or while anticipating or contemplating the you know inclusive urbanization how should policy work how should policy be framed to deal with this kind of segregations this kind of uh, uh um racist logic yeah well yeah we it's it's not an easy it's not an easy solution because uh, people are involved and once people are involved um things get a bit messy things become complex but for inclusive organization to work you need to have some form of representation right you need to have people represented you need to have people from all of these different communities have people speak up on their behalf by represented do you mean in the context of just as um community members or you mean even in the context of in companies that does the selection in companies that does the allocation of accommodation because if if within the companies that does even allocation of accommodation we do not have representation chances is that the skewedness will continue yeah 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 well one of the solutions um that we proposed in our recent paper was the concept of um of auditing the concept of auditing you know of ensuring fairness of ensuring transparency you see the way um you see the way systems like casino systems they're audited to make sure that uh, people who play those games that the outcomes of those systems they are statistically probable right mm -hmm. we can have you know things like um a proper auditing framework a proper transparency framework to make sure that everything that's been done is out in the open one of the things that researchers like us have been pushing you know for for the last couple of years is to make this data publicly accessible to make these algorithms if possible because we understand that some of these algorithms are proprietary solutions which give the company money at least give these researchers some ideas of how everything works because if you don't know what the data looks like 
What kind of data are you referring to now? Data as to the number of people who live there and how we select them, or what, what kind of data in particular? All kinds of data, basically. Right, right. Yeah. Um, all, all kinds of data. They have to be made um, accessible. Mm-hmm. Of course, anonymized, but accessible. Mm-hmm. We need to see what's happening inside. If we can see what's happening, then these systems can be audited. Because I'm thinking of something... Um, of a particular case that happened where uh, you know certain a, a certain company they did something and then they investigated into it and then they found out that the system recommended a particular you know, outcome and then the person in charge manipulated the outcome that the system you know predicted that's a major issue so you see that that level of transparency Mm-hmm. That kind of auditing made that issue surface. Mm-hmm. So we need to ensure transparency across across the board. It's something that I really appreciate about what Europe is currently doing um, with mm-hmm. the uh, general data protection regulation, um, otherwise known as GDPR, um, other legislation that they, they've had and they're also currently building to ensure that transparency you know, across board at different stages and also representations, not just at the community level, but even within within organizations, you need to have the conversations with all of the different stakeholders that are going to be affected by the outcome of your system, by the outcome of your technology. Mm-hmm. That's great. I mean, uh, another thing that I wanted to just touch on as a requirement, and 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 hopefully it is being addressed uh, within your proposition in terms of you know inclusive urbanization, as you said, is is the aspect of education because I'm pretty sure smart cities also require smart people. Isn't it? Yeah, because uh, if you have to use technology, not everyone is you know is adept at using technology. So there has to be some elements of education. Yeah, so that's mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that's something we also need to account for. Right, right. And yeah. in the context of uh, in the context of uh, the first world, probably smart cities have the hope in terms of job creation and probably sustainability and whatnot. Um, I could be wrong, but I'd like you to, for you to comment on that and then respond to, to, to then this question also. What do smart cities have for the third world in a context where, um, as it stands, even the third industrial revolution is not actually even benefited by everybody in the third world? Should the third world, I guess succinctly what I'm trying to say first is, should the third world even be excited and be fascinated by the ideas of smart cities at this particular moment considering the gap between the rich and the poor absolutely absolutely but it's a it's a very difficult um it's a very difficult situation for for the third world for people in the third world you know we talk about positive impact on the environment as one of the advantages of using smart cities where yeah instead of having to use um petrol cars um people are making the shift or the government is even incentivizing people to make a shift to electric cars those kind of things would work in developed worlds in developed countries yeah you have constant electricity supplies you you're well fed you know you have a you have a support system you have the infrastructure in place to support the smart cities it reminds me of this really funny situation that i saw um a while ago on social media where there was a there was a tesla car that was on the truck being towed from ted Millon bridge in lagos nigeria because it ran out of battery right 
Mm-hmm. So we don't have the infrastructure in place. We don't have the uh, the basic things that we need to make this technology work. Mm-hmm. Because if you talk, if you if you talk about these um, uh, some of these things, they, they still feel like luxury, you know, to the average person in developing country. You know, if you buy electric cars, how are you going to charge those electric cars, right? So the basic things are still are still missing. The very first thing, or the primary things that uh, developing countries are, you know, are facing are things like electricity, you know, better schools and not um, not traffic systems talking to each other because these are very very expensive. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get there someday, um, but it's not the it's not the primary um, it's not the primary focus in these um in these nations unfortunately at this moment yeah but obviously the resources could be uh exploited from those same particular countries to help better infrastructure in the first world of course of course that's in fact there are whole books written about it you know uh, one of my favorite book on, on this topic is the is a book t- um, titled bad samaritans yeah so it, it basically talks about the push from this for the bigger countries for these smaller countries um, bigger push for these smaller countries to adopt neoliberalism right mm-hmm. you know free trade yeah yeah all of these all of these all of these things associated with neoliberalism mm-hmm. except that when these developed countries were making their own advancement they took a different economic approach a different economic model that benefited them if they tried to do what they are forcing these other countries to do they wouldn't have gotten to where they are now yeah so there's that issue it's unfortunately it's um yeah i mean it's, and, it's and, and people would want would want us to blame china to blame india and i can't remember whether was it russia whichever that refused to attend was it cope 26 that speaks about you know uh, planet awareness and you know and 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 you know those countries were refusing to sort of use the source of energy that the rich countries are actually pushing them to use because like you've already advanced yourself and now you yeah. have to go to use source of energy that is actually not useful during the night we don't have the sunlight you know we yeah. at some seasons we don't have the wind for us to generate yeah. energy through the wind and whatnot so that kind of pushback is it would you say it's necessary even for a place like africa to say we're not gonna conform according to the world system when we see that you know we've just been thrown with a buzzword of globalization and hence the the impact of neoliberalization actually uh, is felt differently you know in fact in fact literature points out that in in, in the context of africa neoliberalization is actually considered as neocolonialism it's not just it's not just in, in neoliberalism in the in the in the same prism that you know europe and the likes of margaret thatcher when they were speaking about these policies were actually thinking you know likes of ronald reagan when they were speaking about these policies, you know, uh, uh, that we're thinking. So in, in, in the subaltern side, this holds a different connotation. It's not the same as what is happening in the first world, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as we're speaking about this, I was actually revisiting few few um, news outlets that I've, that I've seen. Um, sometime in a while back there's an article written in the guardian this was in 2013 i don't know if you've seen this doc uh even the new york times had an article that actually speaks about how europe uh 
So, so the issue of exploiting the resources is funny in this way, right? Yeah. We exploit resources from Africa to better lives in the first world. But actually, even the first world, whenever those gadgets that they have created, their life is almost coming to an end, they still use Africa as a dumping place. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen. Issue. I don't know if you've seen this this, yeah. this articles that are came in, coming that came out. There's one particular one for those who might be interested in reading it. Uh, it was published in twenty nine in twenty thirteen, um, and it's titled "Africa Will Not Be Europe's Digital Dumping Ground," says leaders. So, so actually, this shows on how, you know, I don't know where's our hope as Africa if they can exploit resources from us, but at the same time use us as as a as a as a, as a dumping place because to recycle these things in their spaces is still a difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I think about this, it's um, Africans and African countries. They have to they have to do what's what's in their best interest. You know, like everyone else, because these countries are pushing neoliberalism. You know trying to the first in africa countries to adopt this when they were developing they protected their infant industries mm -hmm. you know there were tariffs on foreign goods they promoted the adoption of 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 domestically produced goods mm -hmm. all of these all of these things are the things that they did to pro, to protect they had subsidies you know for things that were produced in-house you know domestically and they had really high tariffs on foreign goods mm -hmm. so african countries they have to do what's what's in the best what's in their best interest politically you see the west oh you know democracy democracy and then think about how the west has influenced certain instability in different parts of the world Mm -hmm. Think about this um, this African country, um, Patrice Lumumba. What's um, was it Congo? Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where democratically elected, and then the two big powers, the founding group of people, started coup d'état and overthrew the overthrew the government. Resulted in you know what we have today. They did that same thing in Iran, upset the government just because they had their own vested interest on on things that they need to get so it's yeah you can't you can't you can't force people right yeah these are independent sovereign nations and they have to do what's in their best interest right, right. yeah so so what you're saying doc now because i had asked a question what's there for africa uh are you saying even in terms of job creation and whatnot in the context of smart cities it's not something that africa should hype itself with at this particular moment without the underlying infrastructure it's, it's infrastructure is not it's not going to work mm -hmm. yeah if you don't have if you don't have a basic thing like electricity how are you going to do anything how are you going to power sensors right you know your smart being your smart parking if you don't have a basic thing like electricity nothing is going to work what's what's going to what's going to happen is that people are going to the rich folks in this developing nations they're going to buy teslas right and tesla is an electric car then they will buy generating sets to charge your teslas and guess what is the generating sets use fuel petrol and diesel so you're basically exchanging it's you know where you're getting diesel or the fuel yeah. from right yeah. yeah so instead of putting directly into your car mm -hmm. you're putting it into generating plants mm -hmm. 
right? So without the underlying infrastructure, which Africa is still trying to get right, once we we're, once we're able to solve these basic inf- basic issues at infrastructural level, mm-hmm. then we can start talking about adopting this really nice, um, convenient technology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can speak about data literacy. Yeah. Because one of the things that comes with the fourth industrial and whatnot, probably even smart cities, how we are able to sort of come up with this invention that tells us, okay, this particular lane has got now uh, over traffic. We need to sort of open up whatever traffic lines to allow the free flow of traffic or whatnot. All those things yeah. are things embedded within data literacy. Yeah. Um, um, how big is this thing, data literacy, in a sense that should we rely on it as the new normal in terms of job creation? Should we, should people rely on it? Should people study, uh, you know, uh, data mining, data engineering, or whatever? Uh, is it something here to stay for the long time, or is we just passing? It's going to be a quick pass. Oh yeah, yeah. So that's going to it's going to be here for the long haul. It's not mm-hmm. it's not going away mm-hmm. because society everywhere it's gradually moving to more convenient ways of doing things you know people want to have the best recommendation you know the best movie recommendation um the best is the best that they want to optimize how much time they should they work out for all of these different conveniences that we have they're all powered by data so data is not going anywhere so it's 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 in anyone's best interest to learn about these um, technologies. Maybe they might not do it professionally, but they just have to be informed. They have to be knowledgeable about how these things work. So data is here to stay. Um, it's not going anywhere soon. Mm-hmm. Um, do you in any way see smart cities addressing uh, poverty? In different countries and i'm thinking about i don't know if you've heard of the speculations i don't know if if we should even be speaking about this without having proper data or else people are going to find themselves in trouble basically the, yeah. the the alleged exploitation that even takes place in places like dubai you know where where people who are not citizens are actually used to sort of build their um skyscrapers and smart cities or whatever the case i'm I'm wondering if you can speak to that in relation of poverty alleviation to say does it address issues of poverty and and if it addresses issues of poverty should we then still be worried about issues of um exploitation issues of uh, forced labor or slavery or whatnot in some particular context probably without even naming specific places because i'm sure at this particular moment we're talking without any tangible evidence everything's just him say they say whatever actually there are there there are evidence you know about this kind of uh, this kind of issues i'm going to refer to a very interesting to a very interesting paper mm-hmm. that uh that talks about this um assuming i can I can find the particular um, title. Mm-hmm. It is called um, Decolonial AI, Decolonial Theory as a Socio-Technical Foresight in Artificial Intelligence. It's by Shakir Mohammed, Marie-Theresa Ping, and William Isaac. And they, they dealt properly into this issue 
it's a very influential paper. It was published in um in the in one of the top um, one of the top journals. And one of the issues that they um, they talked about is the concept of algorithmic coloniality. Mm-hmm. There's algorithm algorithmic exploitation. So even things like getting people to do better testing you know for apps or for ai systems there there are issues with um with this kind of um, with this kind of settings you know getting people to label data because this data that you use for training ai systems um many of them they use something called supervised learning mm-hmm. for you to carry out supervised learning you need labeled data you have lots and lots and you know machine learning systems ai systems they consume lots of this kind of data and you need people to to do this hard labor to tell a cat from a dog right so there are there are exploitations of people paying people really small amount of money to label data that will feed into these ai systems okay yeah so so okay you spoke now about the particular job uh, the particular job of data within AI system uh uh from the context of uh, i don't know almost almost i'm not sure if this is even good to say almost white collar kind of job yeah. compared to blue collar because i guess i guess my argument was more directed towards people who built the skyscrapers themselves as to whether do we see uh uh can we praise that this addressing of poverty while at the same time uh being concerned about issues of exploitation i guess i guess that's where the question was actually more directed to but you've answered the second part which i was actually coming to now so yeah. i don't know if i'm making sense with with, with my question does smart cities address poverty yes or no and 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 if it addresses poverty in a context of people who come and build them right should yeah. we but at the same time we're remaining with concerns about issues of exploitation and i was giving the case of dubai as an example to say it is alleged that people are taken from africa to come in not just africa but other parts of the subaltern sites to come and build the skyscrapers and whatnot but there's still issues of exploitation so should we should we celebrate the alleviation or the addressing of poverty without being concerned about issues of exploitation or exploitation and poverty cannot be spoken you know as standalones they have to be sort of brought together no they, they have to be brought together smart cities have lots of benefits you know better transportation better optimized water management energy management safety in public safety for people but with these you also have challenges you also have drawbacks so the thing is about maximizing as much um advantages as we can get from smart cities while also proactively trying to manage these other cons that comes with uh, with smart cities right mm-hmm. everything that has uh, most things that you can use for for good um sometimes it also be used for for bad right so because smart cities have certain you know i'll give an instance people build um they'll build some really fancy tech solutions and because the regulations in um, these developed countries are very strict they won't perform the testing of those technology solutions within those countries 
But guess where they will go to test those those particular solutions? They'll go to Africa. Yeah. They'll go to South America. You know, to yeah. test these these solutions. In the long run, these solutions can be good. But you can see the. But what I'm trying to say is that the end cannot justify the means. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you can't deal with a particular group of people with one standard and then treat a second set of people with a different with a different standard. So while smart cities, other kinds of technologies help people, we also we have to actively you know pursue inclusive organization to make sure everyone who is affected, um, including indirect stakeholders, be a part of it. In um, there's a recent move in our field called the concept of living lab, and the idea behind living labs, um, what you have for software, I'll, I'll talk about this because I'm a software engineer by training. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. If you go to software development companies, most of these software developers are going to be male, male, mm-hmm. and most likely be in their twenties and in their thirties. Well, the people that develop the solutions for for a wide variety of people, many times they really can't empathize with the people they're developing the solutions for. So there is this push towards the concept of living lab where the people who are going to be consumers of the whatever system that's being developed, including indirect stakeholders, they are placed on the same level as those of the people who design and develop the system. So they kind of build, it's called co-design. Mm-hmm. They build and develop these solutions together all the way from requirements to deployment. So all the way from gathering requirements to the design of the system, to development of system, to the evaluation, integration, maintenance of the system. You have all of these parties involved and they all have equal C on it. So you don't have developers who say, oh, we're the professionals, we'll do whatever, we think this is the best way to do things. Mm-hmm. So that's co-design. That concept of living lab of putting everyone who's involved on the same level uh, would help um, would help in this um, in this uh, idea of inclusive organization. Yeah, we have to we have to follow up and um, try to proactively respond to the threats associated with um, smart cities. What will benefit from their advantages? Right. Last question, Doc. I'm listening to you and the way you sort of touch basing on the negativity that we have to anticipate and whatnot. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, one would have thought that with the invention, with the new inventions and the introduction of smart cities, probably we might be moving towards a certain utopia. And whether we can achieve utopia or not, it's, 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 it's a different kind of argument, right? But I'm thinking that as I listen to you, like I'm seeing a lot of red flags and whatnot. What, what would you say? Are we getting better? Or technology is actually making us to be worse kind of people? in terms of how we can exploit others, in terms of how, you know, we can be insensitive towards others. So maybe succinctly what I'm asking is, should one even be celebrating, um, particularly one from the subaltern side, the global south, should they even be celebrating this whole idea of smart cities whenever, if they can still sense the fact that their lives might still be in trouble, there's no change for them. There's no future, there's no hope. If if it's something, so for people um, from from developing world, it's something that they can probably 
you know, look forward to as the next set of challenge to tackle, but not necessarily something that they should be focused on. Every kind of technology brings, um, I'm not sure if I can, if I can get a reference correctly, but I believe the attention spans of people are, you know, are gradually, you know, reducing. Mm -hmm. um, many, many years ago, um, when people argue with each other, they have, sometimes if they're authors, they write books, you know, to respond to each other. Exactly. For instance, um, this is guy, there were two friends. One is GK Chesterton, another one is um, Heller Belloc, and the third one is, um, I'm trying to revise his name, I don't, I don't remember his name. One of them wrote a book, and then son responded, no, someone else um, wrote a book, and then Belloc responded with a book and titled the book, Mr. Belloc Objects, which contains a coherent argument mm -hmm. on why he doesn't agree with that other person's perspective. Right. And then another person responded with a mini book, responding to Mr. Belloc Objects. And then this other guy responded with yet another mini book titled Mr. Belloc Steel Object. And if you read the discourse, in fact, in one of those, um, one of these exchanges, you know, it leads to you, you read all of these, you, you're like, people actually sat down to think, you know, to write down, to communicate their arguments coherently. Mm -hmm. And I compare it to what we have today on Twitter, 240 characters, you know, is, you know, people jabbing here and there without any proper coherent flow of argument, mm -hmm. flow of communication, you know. Yeah, so it's, it's not always, it's not always technology, it's good if it aids us, but if it's bad when it's, um, it takes away certain, certain kind of responsibilities from you know certain kind of thing that we as humans are supposed to do right right yeah i feel you i think i'll be guilty if i let you go without asking you this one question <laughs> and maybe it's not a question but can you make a comment uh about smart cities and climate change because i think many people are so fascinated in the conversation about climate change today from any particular angle that you you wish as as maybe you're closing you could just comment on it and then just give us a closing remark about the overall conversation but what can you say about smart cities and climate change yeah there's a in fact climate change is very it's a very controversial um, topic um, I so i have to tread very carefully here mm -hmm. yeah but the but the idea behind smart cities um, one of the advantages is it's the positive impact on the environment so if you have a properly connected smart transportation system, that means you're going to have less cars on the road. If you have one of, one of the recent research says that cars, they spend 10 minutes just looking for car parks, for a parking spot in the parking bay. You know, you know how much Newcastle, you spend uh, 30 to 45 minutes looking for a parking. Yeah. So when you're driving around, driving around, you're releasing CO2 emission. What if before you get there, because you have a properly interconnected smart city um, system that tells you this particular bay has been reserved for you, or you're going to have you know, this number of free parking bays 
and then you can easily park there you don't you do this five six seven days a week and then everyone else does it you know it adds up and i not solve the climate change issue but it's going to um, contribute to less co2 <laughs> emissions mm-hmm. right so it's it's one of the one of the advantages of having smart steam solutions um better energy if we are able to do you know have properly um properly done properly connected energy system properly connected smart um, water management systems for instance you know these trucks that go to pick up garbage bins right yeah the many of them they would go what they have a fixed route fixed timetable and then they would go whether or not those traffic those refuse bins are full mm-hmm. if we have a smart properly deployed smart city solutions that makes the excuse me that makes the truck that allows the truck to go and pick refuse bins only when those bins are full right and it shows them the most optimal way the most op- optimal routes to get to those traffic bins it's going to really it's going to reduce how much emissions it's going to make it a whole lot um easy you know more accessible transportation so all of these do have um do have a positive influence on the environment and then there's also a catch to it you know think of think about electric cars you know mm-hmm. lithium batteries you know how do you dispose of lithium battery without it affecting <laughs> without them affecting the environment yeah you're gonna send them to africa that's why the articles we're talking about the one of the guardian and the one i was referring to about the new york times that you know uh, yeah. uh solar panels that are almost dead probably yeah. five years life remaining and mobile phones have been sent down to places like tanzania yeah it's a it's an issue uh, sorry mozambique even so you look at mozambique it's it's a heap it's a dumping site for the west yeah yeah it's yeah we have to we have to look for a way to uphold the good look for a way to adapt the good and then look for a way to fix the bad right mm. it's lovely hearing from you doc i appreciate your time your insights always um Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Humphrey Obier, and today we were talking about smart cities and big data. And if you missed the previous episode with him on responsible artificial intelligence, make sure that you still jump back onto our podcast and try to find it. It's very evident. It's very easy to find it. And uh, Dr. Humphrey, thank you so much for coming in. How do people find you and how do people get access to audio pin? That's you kicking us out. Oh yes, thanks Tony for having me. Or no, Dr. Tony. Yes, that's the correct way of saying it now. <laughs> congrats. Yeah, I have to say that congrats on your doctor. Thank I have to say it on air. Yeah, it's uh it's very pleasant, very pleasant news. You know. Thank you. We should, we should have drinks sometimes to celebrate that. We will. We shall. Yeah. We shall. <laughs> yeah. So for, for AudioPin, AudioPin is an app um we built I built with my team. Um it helps people to to interact better with podcast content. And um, yeah, it's available on um, both on both platforms, Apple Play and Google Play Store. You just need to search for Audio Pin, A U D I O P I N, and then um, you find it, download it, leave us some feedback, and let us know what you like in future release and future versions. 
thanks for choosing the visions and tones podcast and we appreciate each and every one of y'all remember to join us on our instagram at underscore visions underscore tones and let's have a chat right there go out there and be the best versions of yourselves be best humans and we are out